all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Dr. Allie Brown, and I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Michelle Owens, and this is Southern Remedy for Women on MPB Think Radio. We are so happy to be here today together in the studio. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been a, whenever we've had a few, a couple weeks or something, when it's either one or the other of us in the studio, or we have to go to an encore presentation, it's especially wonderful to be together again. Indeed. Especially on a beautiful day like today. And Dr. Owens is wearing a beautiful blue shirt. I have to say, you look fantastic. Oh, see, thank you. We'll have I've to been Facebook Live. On, I've been working on do, doing some, some more color, mm, experimenting springy. with some color. Okay. Yeah, because I typically wear dark stuff all the time. Yeah, maybe that's what it is, because when yeah. I saw you today, I was like, what? I know, right? So blue, <laughs> but it looks good. I'm it trying to, cool. look, it's spring, you know, I'm trying to step it up a little bit. Get some spring in your step. Indeed. And this is lovely springy weather that we're having now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Hope it lasts a minute. Maybe we can have some sunshine and a little bit less rain. You are the sunshine that Aww. we so desperately need, and I'm so glad to see you. Oh, my you. God. Can we just hug right now? Oh, my gosh. Or jump up and down Jay in is vomiting. Circle. Jay is vomiting in the production booth <laughs> right now. No, he said he's not. He said he's not. Well, we have another ray of sunshine. Indeed. I'm sure you've been told this in the past. California Dr. Jill Woodruff, yes. Look, California sunshine. That's right. <laughs> and um, we are very lucky to have someone with us today who is an expert in eating disorders. Um, and we're going to talk all about eating disorders in our hour today. And we're going to take your questions and comments at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. 672 7464 Dr. Woodruff, hey. it's so great to have you. And I think in the past we've done this virtually, yes. but to have you in in person. It's, it's fantastic. so exciting. This yeah. is my first time, I think, in a radio studio. And oh. it's kind of strange hearing myself on the headphones, <laughs> so I'm going to have to get used to this. That's what, at least we don't have to see ourselves. I always like that. I'm much more apt to, uh, to hear myself. So go ahead and tell. It's been a minute since you've it been has. on. So if you'll go ahead and tell the listening audience who you are, where you're from, all these wonderful Absolutely. things. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> well, it's a bit of a long story, so I'll try and give you the Reader's Digest version. But I'm, <laughs> I'm Dr. Liz Woodruff. I'm a clinical psychologist here in the, in the Jackson area. I've got a private practice in Ridgeland uh, where I work and I see individuals, families, couples for therapy. Uh, so I'll get into that a bit more here in a moment about exactly what I do. But uh, I lived in Mississippi many, many years ago in Natchez as a kid, uh, left uh, in, in high school and ended up doing my graduate work in Texas, got a, a degree in clinical psychology, a PhD, clinical psychology. And I wanted to get out of, well, I wanted to get far away from my parents, not because I don't love them, but because I, to stretch had, your I had never lived more than 30 minutes away from them. So I figured it would be a good idea to, yeah, to branch out a little bit. So I applied for uh, my pre-doctoral inter- internship on the East Coast and the West Coast um, 
primarily, and I ended up at Stanford uh, in, in an internship program where I did my pre-doc work, did a little bit of clinical work. Did Don't you l- love that? I love the humility there. And I ended up at Stanford. I just <laughs> womp, kinda, womp. Look, I tripped and fell into Stanford. <laughs> I couldn't believe it, actually. I could not believe it. I still sometimes I'm stunned about it. And it was an amazing experience. I mean, I was trained by some of the best of the best. And I did specialize in working with college-age kids. Oh, that's better. Thank you. I did specialize in working with college-age kids, of, of course, at Stanford. And I did some teaching there as well. And I had planned, actually, on going back to Texas to, to work in Austin. But the Bay Area, uh, San Francisco Bay Area, was so beautiful that I decided mm-hmm. I needed to stick around and just explore a little bit before I left. And I ended up staying out there for 10 years. Uh, so I did. Yeah, I did. She got lost in the fog. I did. <laughs> I couldn't find my way out. And it was just so pretty. Um, but crazy expensive. I yeah. mean, exorbitant prices for rentals and buying. You can't buy a house, really. Um, but uh, so I did some uh, work in private hospitalization settings, uh, IOP, which is intensive outpatient settings, treating eating disorders. And then I started a private practice there as well. So I've primarily been working with eating disorders really since graduate school, but in particular started um, my training at Stanford is where I really started addressing eating disorders and treating them and so I've been doing that for you know a while now can't I, I can't do the math off the top of my head but it's been a number of years uh, I'm certified in some stuff you know I'm certified in family-based therapy for eating disorders which is kind of the gold standard of treatment I won't get into all the details of what that looks like but suffice to say that uh, for kids who have eating disorders um, parental or caregiver involvement is really important and, and I'll probably get more into this in, in a little while, too, but we tend to think of eating disorders as a neurobiological illness. And the reason I say that is because um, an eating disorder is an illness that really compromises someone's brain and interferes with their ability to make a ju- judgment, you know, around food, around purging, around exercise, whatever it may be. And so often with, with young kids in particular, parents or caregivers need to step in because otherwise it's really difficult to get someone motivated to recover. Uh, so hence the family-based therapy. I do something called emotion-focused therapy for eating disorders, which gets at kind of the underlying psychological and emotional mechanisms that mm-hmm. contrib- contribute to the illness, whether it's binge eating, anorexia, et cetera. Um, and then I, of course, do a lot of individual work, too. I prefer, if I'm going to do individual work, I do prefer it to be an adult mm-hmm. um, because of, of the things I mentioned earlier. But also, even if it is with adults, having support system is really important. So whether their support, their their spouse, partner, friends, family come in mm-hmm. to treatment or not, you know, having some, some support outside of therapy is really important as well. But uh, anyway, I, I'm definitely not going to get into all the details about how I wound up back in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. It wasn't really in the plans, uh, but but it has here to I am. Do with the boy. <laughs> it does, and and I know you know the feeling, Michelle. It has I know. to do with the boy. <laughs> he he brought me back. He lured me back, and I'm actually very very happy to be here. It's I a really beautiful am. part of the world. It too. is, yeah. and the and, people are so friendly. And you know, you have expertise that is greatly needed, right. and so we're right. grateful that you're here, um, yeah, and uh, in too. in Mississippi, and here today with us in the studio. Yeah. So yeah. Thank, thank you. you. So let's tell me this: mm-hmm. what is it about? Um, about eating disorders particularly that resonated with you? Mm-hmm. Like, why Why is this your area of focus? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I 
run anxious. I grew up as an anxious person. I am still an anxious person. Uh-huh. Allie understands. And I told Allie, I showed up, you know, 30 minutes earlier than she told me I needed to show up. <laughs> right. <laughs> Out of my anxiety. So I'm kind of a, an anxious person in my own recovery, you know, from, from that. And um, eating disorders actually tend to be uh, rooted in anxiety, right? And and you'll see super high rates of anxiety in folks with eating disorders. Uh, so my experience with anxiety and my own experience around food issues, disordered eating, et cetera, which feels like 100 years ago, um, you know, and my own experience healing from some of that stuff, really, honestly, at a very young age, at 16, I was, I decided I wanted to do this work. And I, you know, I just never really doubted that this was the path I wanted to take, which I feel really fortunate. You Sounds know? like a calling. It yeah. Does. Yeah. Yeah. And well, I should, I should backpedal a little bit. There are moments still where I question the decision. <laughs> Amen, I girl. I know it. <laughs> but, you know, overall, yeah, it, it sort of just feels like my life's work. And, because it is. It is. My, it <laughs> is. It is. I've devoted my life to it. And as difficult as this illness, these illnesses can be yeah. to treat the experience. And I, I can't stress this in a way that like doesn't make it sound cheesy, but also in a way that like really captures what it feels like to watch somebody transform, mm-hmm. you know, and heal from these problems. It's just it's remarkable, you know, and it's really rewarding. So for all the struggles I experience in the work, the the growth and the healing is is pretty amazing. So, you know, in a nutshell, that's a, a long-winded explanation of what drew me it, to this. It's an explanation full of passion, and we appreciate that. <laughs> We're going to go to the phone lines now and talk to Becky, who's calling us uh, from the Jackson area. Here. Hey, Becky. Hey, welcome to Jackson. I'm so glad you decided to come back to Mississippi. Oh, <laughs> thank you, Becky. Thank you. Well, we have a lot of crazy people in Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I never really. Um, Becky does not mix words. <laughs> Straight shooter. I, yeah. I never really thought I, I I had problems until you know, like I've been uh, diagnosed with cancer twice. I have stage oh. four cancer, and um, and then I started having hot flashes. So my oncologist kind of tricked me into uh, antidepressant, and then I lost my. And so, um, I don't know, I, I, question has to do with eating and antidepressants. I feel like I'm not hungry anymore. Mm. And I've been on the antidepressant for, I was diagnosed. And um, I used to be, when I was a kid, I'm, I was hyper, you know, I was ADHD. And I never really cared about food too much. I always wanted to play instead of eat. And so I guess I'm still kind of like that, but mm-hmm. now that I'm on antidepressant, I feel like I just don't have, and I go to a, a therapist, and um, I'm not depressed, I'm just not hungry, mm-hmm. so, the, and I've gained 30 pounds, though, so, you know, because of it, but mm-hmm. I, I think some, it's, uh, what is it, it's uh, the one they call, uh, it's a sexer. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it seems to be, I mean, like, I, like when I lost Ben, I couldn't cry. I mean, I really haven't really grieved and he's been gone for a year and a half. And, and I think that any depressant has something to do with it too. And, um, so I just wanted your take on that. Like as far as eating and antidepressants, does that tend to? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you. Thank you for that info. Um, Definitely antidepressants can affect appetite in either direction. You know, they can suppress appetite or it might increase appetite. And certainly some of them can 
lead to weight gain. And, you know, the medical doctors in the room might be able to speak to this more intelligibly than I can. But, you know, not every antidepressant is, is created equal. And um, I don't know if you've tried others b- besides Effexor, but it often takes a while to find the right fit, to find the right medication. Um, and, you know, I, I, as, as painful as it is to lose a loved one and as much as depression, you know, can be debilitating and anxiety and whatnot and, you know, medication, I do believe wholeheartedly in medication and think it's really beneficial. But if it's leading to kind of physiological issues around your appetite and if you can't even grieve, you know, this important loss, it may be worth talking to your, you know, prescribing physician, psychiatrist about uh, the medication and see about getting on a different one, trying out some different ones. There's also something they can do called genetic testing that can help determine, you know, which medications you'll be more amenable to and which might not be indicated for you. So, um, but yeah, I mean, my, my first thought is if your appetite is really severely affected and you're not eating enough, uh, it may not be the right medication for you. I don't know if y'all have thoughts on that. So um, it's well, inter- it's interesting um, what Becky mentioned mm-hmm. um, is something that I've heard from, from people. And so it's that concept of... Um, so the reason that you get started on the medication and the unintended consequences or maybe some side effects that really aren't related to what the medicine is supposed to be treating. Um, for example, um, so I have a very close friend who went through a, a incredibly traumatic experience, the loss of someone very close, kind of as Becky has explained, um, she has had. And was started on antidepressants as a result of that. This is not about hot flashes or other things, but was started on an antidepressant for that um, during a period of intense grief. And she actually said to me, I have stopped. So, how, you know, in my, my friendly check-in, how are things going? How are you doing? And she said, I stopped taking that medicine. Mm-hmm. And I said, mm, okay, why? And she said, because... Because I realized that sometimes I need to cry. Like, I don't need to cry all the time. But she's like, sometimes I need to cry. And I realized that when I when that medicine is on board, like, I, I can't cry. Like, I'm, I'm processing intellectually yeah. these right. things that are very hurtful. And, and I, I actually want to feel. Mm-hmm. I need to feel some of this so that I can move forward. Mm-hmm. And so she's like, I've, I'm feeling very conflicted because I, I realize that there's a benefit in taking this because it keeps me from dwelling in the dark place. But, you know, like there are times when I realize that part of my recovery, part of my healing is going through this grief process and that sometimes I have to touch that space. I Absolutely. have to be able to be there because I, I I need to do that to to honor the life that has been lost and and to just process this thing that's happened to me. Mm-hmm. So here when she said that I mm-hmm. the antenna yeah. immediately went up and I was like sometimes that so that can be a good thing in certain cir- circumstances and situations and in others maybe not so much. And so being but- able to back off of the medication or in some instances, you know, being able to stop it for a short period of time. The beauty of um, many of those medications, especially um, some of the newer 
um, antidepressants is that you can back down or come off of them. Like you, a lot of people don't have to be on them forever. Um, and if if you can do that safely, so that you are able to experience a broader range of emotions that you feel like you need to experience, then that is totally within the realm of something that's acceptable. Yeah. So Becky, bring this to your treating physician. You know, as far as the hot flashes are concerned, that effector is really the classic one yep. that's used to treat that. However. It's kind of, you know, we have to weigh all the benefits, right? And maybe have hot flashes, but have less of them and uh, be able to have an affect that's more tolerable to yeah. you. And there are definitely some wow. non, there are some non-pharmacologic, like non-prescription uh, options. If you are into herbal remedies and those things that many people tout as being helpful. Um, and, and while I'm definitely not an expert in that, um, and they can be highly variable, you have to be careful when you kind of start delving into that. But at the same time, there are definitely some things that have been known to help, for example, like soy and those kinds of things that have phytoestrogens in them that will help for women who um, experience um, hot flashes and menopausal symptoms. So there are definitely a lot of other options. And there are also some newer medications that are out there, um, some that are hormonal, some that are not, that might also provide you with relief. But Effexor is kind of one of those classic uh, medications that's non-hormonal that is pretty effective in relieving symptoms. But if you've gotten to the point where you feel like the other effects of that medication are now interfering with your life probably a little bit more than your hot flashes did, then it might be time to make a change. All right. Thanks for your call, Becky. Okay, well, thank you. Thanks, Becky. Yeah, you bet. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 We are talking today with Dr. Liz Woodruff about eating disorders, and we're going to talk more about that after the break. This is Southern Remedy for Women on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Thanks for listening. You are listening to Southern Remedy for Women, the show where we address issues of health and wellness and add a woman's perspective. And today, you got three women in the studio. I'm here joined with my lovely co-host, Dr. Allie Brown, and we have our other girly, Dr. Liz Woodruff, who is... um, she is a lot of things, but her area of focus is eating disorders. And so that's what we were talking about today. We're talking about disordered eating. If you are someone you know or love has an eating disorder, if you think they may have an eating disorder, um, if you are a person who has struggled with an eating disorder and have um, made it to the light on the other side of the tunnel, please definitely um, call us and share your experiences. Call us if you have questions. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two. 
7464. Um, so, Liz, I wanted to go, we're going to shift real quick. I wanted mm-hmm. to ask you um, a, a question because you mentioned this the relationship between anxiety. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I've I've heard people say things like, "Oh, I was an overachieving child who has developed into an anxious adult." And so I was just wondering, is there a because this is something that oftentimes disordered eating has its roots much earlier Absolutely. in mm-hmm. our in our lives, right? So developmentally, a thing that kind of happens are is very common amongst mm-hmm. adolescents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so how much of that is related to, um, and it, this this may be like five million questions in one question, but how much of it is kind of related to this concept of, like, is there a link between this mm-hmm. concept of overachieving mm-hmm. or, like, mm-hmm. excellence? Because I think about, like, the like the ballerinas yep, and sure. the gymnasts and, and these areas mm-hmm. where there are this, these really intense... Um, athletics, cheerleading, and those kinds of things, but those things are also kind of linked to physical appearance mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as well. So, is there mm. anything that suggests that, like, which one is is more influential, or is it really just kind of like the perfect storm when those things oh come gosh, together? Yeah. Well, it's funny you say the perfect storm because I have a presentation that has a slide titled "The Perfect Storm" about the variables that contribute to the development of an eating disorder, you know? And um, so there's so many, as you said, I mean, there's so many things that contribute. It's not just one thing. You know, a lot of people will say it's the media. It's the, it's the ultra thin ideal in the media that, that promotes eating disorders. Well, it doesn't help, you know, but it's, it's not the cause. Um, There are so many things, genetics, certainly we know that there's a pretty large um, amount of variance that that's, that's contributed to by, by genetics. Um, uh, let's see what else. Certainly the, the media and the culture that we live in, uh, social peer relationships, things like that, getting bullied or, you know, anxiety and in, in social anxiety, things like that. Um, genetics and environment, epigenetics, the, the, the influence of the two on each other uh, can contribute. Um, and then temperament. So I'm not going to get into a whole lot of detail about what temperament is because we could be here all day. But basically, we're born with a certain type of temperament. You know, you you, you think about babies like you'll say, oh, he's mm-hmm. such a good baby or wow, she was really colicky or she was really fussy. You know, that's actually inborn some of that in us. And folks with eating disorders, in my experience, have a temperament that I like to refer to as a super feeler. And this is the kid who is often called super, super sensitive or you just get so upset about everything, you know, but these kids just their their nervous systems are more vulnerable to emotion. They're more vulnerable to conflict. This is the, the super feeler is the kid who when mom comes home and she's in a huff. The kid's like, oh, my gosh, what can I do to make her feel better? I'll cook dinner. I'll clean up. I'll make sure everything's perfect so she's not upset. Or this is the person who, when their spouse comes home upset, you know, with adults, thinks it's their fault, even when it isn't, right? Um, Very, very attuned and sensitive to others' emotions and also have a tendency to feel like it's their fault, you know, to, to assign blame to themselves. Uh, and they also feel their own emotions in a really heightened kind of way. Um, and so that's one piece of it. Michelle, and I think that contributes to some of the anxiety is that I need to keep everything perfect or I need to keep everything orderly or I need to prevent anything bad from happening because I can't handle it. It's too much for my nervous system. It's too much for my brain. It's too much for my emotions. 
Um, and that can be a motivator to turn toward food or restricting food or over exercising, et cetera, to manage the intensity that you're feeling. So you know, people, there's a myth that eating disorders are about food. They're not about food at all. Food becomes the way that these deficits in like coping and processing uh, and relational functioning get expressed. So we use the eating disorder as kind of a maladaptive coping mechanism. Yeah. So, you know, many folks, maybe they'll say, oh, I've, I'm having a hard day. I'm going to go eat some ice cream or they might feel guilty about having eaten too much, et cetera. When does it cross the line into an mm-hmm. eating disorder? Mm-hmm. That's such a good question. And it's it's one that's hard to answer. You know, the the way that we tend historically, traditionally to diagnose is either or you either have it or you don't. Right. And if you don't meet all these really specific criteria for anorexia, let's say, then you don't have anorexia. But the problem with that is, is we're missing a lot of what we might call subclinical eating disorders, and they're not getting diagnosed until they become so severe, right, that someone might need hospitalization or, mm-hmm. you know, more intensive treatment. Um, what I would say to that, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about folks who come into my office, and I've had folks who come into my office for depression, anxiety, uh, you know, stress about school, stress about work, and I find out through assessment that there is some some you know, concerning stuff going on with food and weight. So what I would say when it crosses that line is if you're pretty preoccupied, even if you're of a healthy weight, you're medically stable, if you're so preoccupied with food, when you're going to eat, what you're going to eat, when can you exercise, if you're organizing your life around that largely, you know, if it's if it's becoming impairing in some way to you, and not, it doesn't even have to be super severe, but, you know, you're canceling plans or you're choosing to stay at home and eat versus going out to dinner with friends because you're worried about the calories in the food or you don't want people to see you eat, you know. Um, And then also if you start uh, exercising, for example, beyond injury, right? If you're injured Mm -hmm. and you keep exercising because the anxiety about, excuse me, not exercising is so Mm -hmm. severe. So those are just some examples. It's hard. It's it's a hard line to kind of delineate with words, you know, but it's a lot of it is clinical judgment. Um, But what I would say to folks listening, if they're wondering, like, do I have a problem or do I not ask yourself about how much headspace is this taking up for me? How much headspace is food, weight, um, uh, body image, exercise taking up? Is my self-esteem highly connected to my body? And again, that's a hard one to answer, too, mm-hmm. because we live in a world that's obsessed with thinness and so and leanness. And so many of us have negative body image. But if your body image is so closely tied to your self-esteem that if you ate a little more chocolate than you think you should and then you become depressed, right, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Or, or Those are some of the flags for me that if it's not a full-blown eating disorder, I really want to hone in more and understand what's going on there and try to put a stop to it, you know, so to speak, because that's that's that risky zone where you're on a slippery slope and you could develop a full-blown eating disorder. Yeah, well, that, that makes sense. Yeah, the gray that, area, right? That was yeah. what I wanted to ask. Me, like, mm-hmm. how much, just, just to talk a little bit more about the role of guilt mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. In, this, in, in this process of disordered eating. Mm-hmm. In terms of how guilt influences disordered eating? Well, I mean, or so what's the like, experience? Yeah, like mm-hmm. what's the experience? Because yeah. I know sometimes yeah. people, yeah. depending on, I guess, what it is, sometimes you may eat and feel guilty about what you've consumed. Mm-hmm. Um, or perhaps, I mean, whether it's whether it's calorie counting. Yep. Um, I watched a special many years ago, and it was about a young girl who was um, anorexic. And... Um, 
one of the things I remembered her saying was she's like, I could tell you all the calories and everything that I put into my body. And she said, I got to a point where if I had a, if I had a stick of chewing gum, I knew how long I needed to be on the treadmill. Well, and some to programs burn off promote that behavior. Some calories. programs promote that behavior, right? Which mm-hmm. I guess to some extent mm-hmm. can be good for some people, but for some, I guess it's not. You mm-hmm. know, it's weird. I was mm-hmm. on dance line in in, in college, and we, I, and I think you know, I'm just reflecting. No judgment, <laughs> but I'm reflecting back on this and. And we we weighed in mm. in front of the uh. listen. Hello, okay. Um, you know, and I'm team a little thi- judgment, a little, little judgment. Well, and I'm hashtag team thick thighs, um, which by the way are life saving. Um, and I just remember yeah. as a as a young person, I was in college. And that that was how we started off our practice. We didn't start our practice with like the stretching came after that, Mm -hmm. but we had weigh ins. And so you and and the person to the person that we were accountable to was our sponsor. Mm -hmm. And our sponsor was the person who had a she had a, a chart and she recorded we every week, the first practice of every week. She recorded mm. our weight. Yeah. So I see where the guilt question Absolutely. is coming in, right? Absolutely. I mean, every single practice. And the other thing was, this wasn't like, oh, I'm, we're going to do this. You're going to do weigh-ins in the locker room. Mm-hmm. This was, we are, the scale is out in the middle of the gym, and we do weigh-ins, and everybody lines up, and we step on the scale. She doesn't just read the numbers. She says it out loud. And everybody who's there can hear. Mm. And and I will say that we never and that was we never were overtly body shame like Shamed, oh yeah. shame on you. But there was there was a a sense of pressure. Mm-hmm. And and one of my roommates was a was on dance line with me, and we had different body we had a di- we had different body habituses. Okay, so it was different. And and I know. Like, you know, after weigh-in, the numbers had to be close because if they weren't, she was slamming the she was slamming the refrigerator door yeah. or, you know, yeah. those kinds of... And it, mm-hmm. it created a level of tension among us that, you know, mm-hmm. but it was, it was normed. Like, that was the norm. We knew that we had to do that. It was a part of it. Nobody really thought anything of it. But as I'm reflecting mm-hmm. back as a more mature human being, mm-hmm. I kind of realized, like how much pressure that really created and how much we were really exposed to and how we could have done that, how that could have been done so differently and so much better. Right. Um, but yeah, it was, a, it, it was the number and she sure. goes up three, up three pounds mm, from last week. Right. And you're like, I mean, and we're young women. Mm-hmm. So there are things that happen to us physiologically that influence our body weight from oh, one day to the course. next or from one week to the next. And none of that stuff was ever discussed. It was never talked about, it didn't matter that we were on the team and that we had made the team and we competed to be a part of that group. But then it was this internal thing. And it was the question of whether or not you, quote, made weight. Yeah. That was the term yeah. that we used. Like are your you, wrestlers. Are right, you that's sitting I was just thinking that too. Yeah. Are you sitting out because you didn't make mm-hmm. weight this week? Or you're not going to be able to perform this week because you didn't make weight? So how much of what you see is something like that mm-hmm. versus right. something kind of deeper yeah. that you can't put your finger yeah. on, I guess? Well, what I, one quick thing I was going to say about that is even if she wasn't overtly shaming you by saying, 
and you know you're disgusting whatever you know, th- that's still shaming it by is. saying you can't right. dance if Please. you're uh, you know or uh, 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 it's punishment right. yeah, it's, it's about punishment. a number it and it's embarrassing about performance. Yeah. and back to that idea of the perfect storm so not everybody who's in a situation like that is going to develop an eating disorder, right. right? But some people will. And so, or they might develop some disordered eating as a result of that, right? Or so it messes with your, like the way that you, yes, like your even body your perception image. You're and fast so and the way that you oh think God, about food. I could go on. I mean, the way you think about food, your ideas about weight and what's healthy become totally distorted, right? And it's really hard to unlearn all of that. Yeah. Um, and so I would say, actually, Allie, to your question, often that incident specifically, I do see that with some people in um, you know, sports where weight mm-hmm. is a factor. Uh, and and it, it does. Those types of sports, you will see higher rates of eating disorders than something like th- th- where weight isn't a focus or weight or your body's not on display, for example. You know, dancing, ballet, gymnastics, your mm-hmm. body is the, 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 the tool or, or what, whatever you want right, to call right. it, right? And so um, there are higher rates. Again, that doesn't mean everyone's going to develop an eating disorder who dances or uh, does gymnastics. But um, but it it does place those who have these other variables at at higher risk, potentially. Um, But what I was going to say quickly is that... um, most of the time, there is some kind of impetus. So whether it's being on a sports team like that, going on a diet, being body shamed, told you're fat and you need to lose weight, things like that, there's often an impetus for developing an eating disorder, kind of a discrete event. Not always. One eight seven seven MPB ring is the number. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. We're taking the next break of the hour, but we're still here. So give us a call about eating disorders. We're talking today with Doctor Liz Woodruff. On MPB Think Radio, this is Southern Remedy for Women. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy for Women on MPB Think Radio. Today we are talking about eating disorders with Dr. Liz Woodruff, who is... (laughs) psychologist with expertise in this area and we're so lucky to have her here today and so grateful we're going to go straight to the phone lines and talk to mikey who's calling us from mobile hey mikey hey (laughs) Uh, i listen i so identify and have already learned so much from the comments that that have been said today um uh, I am them. <laughs> we have met the enemy, and it is us. <laughs> um, uh, and I'm, I still work on it, and I think everybody still works on it. But I was just, <laughs> as I was listening to what you were saying, I was sitting down and realizing that I was letting go of, I've been through uh, uh, some severe traumas, uh, psychological as well as more psychological and physical lately, but uh, combined um, uh, in the last two years. And uh, I 
was also realizing that I was letting go of some of the tension within my spine itself. And, uh, you know, when you get to be, you know, beyond 18 or whatever, um, you begin to hear this cracking and creakings. And uh, I take that as a good sign. I try not to overdo it. But my point here is hopefully going to be that whatever age you are, when you're younger, your body is much more elastic, of course. And you are able to do a lot more or, or different things, shall we say. And if you've never been injured, you're able to do different things. So, um, but, you know, you learn to work within those differences. And how do you, you know, I, I would like to know why it isn't emphasized more that you do that, that you accept your body for what it is and you listen to it. If it's cracking and creaking, okay, work with your body. You're the only one that's in there. <laughs> Mikey, I love, can you just say that again? Why isn't it preached or taught to what love and accept your body? Can you, can you rephrase that? Cause I loved the way you said it. Well, it's your body. You're the only one that's in there. Yeah. You're and it's the only, only one you got. Right? No. Love it and work with it. That's right. And it's the only one you got, right? Yeah, and, and everybody's body is different. That's and right. that's not only, that's, that's right. probably not good, that's a great thing. It's a great it's thing. Really we were really made to be different. World if we were all the same, uh, right? <laughs> I, amen. Well, and, you know, I say, why aren't these things taught about a lot of things? You know, like, why aren't we taught how to process our feelings? Why aren't we taught how to manage conflict? Why aren't we taught how to manage our anxiety? We're taught parabolas, you know, in geometry or whatever. I don't even know what that is. Actually, maybe algebra. But, you know, we're taught all kinds of things we're never going to use. But we're not taught about the basics of, you know, self-compassion, managing stress, mental health, and the least of which are learning to love our bodies as they are and accept them rather than trying to change them all Mm -hmm. the time or beat them into submission. And um, I really appreciate your comments. I wish that, you know, we could change the culture. It's very hard. We're trying. It's very hard. But, you know, people like you, if we can if we can promote more of this and, and speak this and share it, you know, hopefully the message spreads, especially for our young folks, you know, so that they can um, develop some self-compassion and body compassion early on so that they don't have to develop eating disorders and go to treatment so that they can then figure it all out. Thank Absolutely. you for your comments, Mikey. We're going to stay on the phones and talk to John, who's calling us from Corinth. Hey, John. Hello. Hi. Hi. Hey, John. Uh, yes, ma'am. Uh, you know this may sound unusual. I, I don't know. Well, first of all, I have a uh, first cousin. She was bulimic, and, and she had a, a really difficult time. Had mm-hmm. to go into therapy. But uh, anyway, you often hear about the women and their uh, yeah. self-body, self-image. And I was in my 20s, and I wasn't a heavy guy. Somebody called me husky, mm-hmm. and it really, mm-hmm. and And I was in my 20s, you know, and I wanted to be like rock or slim, you know, and, and I was obsessed with losing weight, of course. I didn't know. Well, I worked pretty hard, but, uh, you know, this is in the 70s, so there really weren't, weren't facilities, you know, back right. then. Uh, like there are now, but you know, uh, it w- it was really like a mental obsession. Mm-hmm, just, mm-hmm. It, it, during during my entire twenties and possibly to my 
uh, it's kind of strange. I weigh 150 now, you know, slim as I've ever been. <laughs> and, you know, so I don't even think about it mm. anymore, you know. So uh, uh, I, I, I don't know. I, and I was also curious as to year. Do you think a young lady or maybe a man uh, that's bulimic or anorexic that through therapy and, you know, count, uh, all the things and uh, that they ever truly get it off their mind? Mm. They're all right, John's bringing up two great points, yeah. men with eating disorders, mm-hmm. and then is it like when you're an alcoholic and you're mm-hmm. always an alcoholic, but yeah. you're in recovery? I've heard people say similar things mm-hmm. about eating disorders. Mm-hmm. Is that accurate? Right, right, right. I'll start with the, the question about men. and um, I would, John, I, um, I'm sorry that you had that experience. You know, it sounds like it was pretty tough and it lasted for quite a while. Um, and and I'm, I don't know whether you got any kind of help yourself or treatment or not. If you didn't, you know, that wouldn't shock me because um, because it's true that men are underdiagnosed. And, it, you know, there's, again, there's this myth that men don't have eating disorders. It's only white, straight, uh, privileged women. And that's not true. Young women, for that matter. And that's not true at all. Men absolutely have eating disorders. The rates are lower on average. However, I would say that may not even be quite accurate because men are underdiagnosed. So um, men absolutely have eating disorders. But I think we live in a world where often men feel ashamed or embarrassed to be honest about that and and ask for help. And, And unfortunately, you know, we live in a world where men are culturally conditioned not to need help, right, to be more stoic, not to have a lot of emotions or mental health struggles. So that further complicates the process of coming and asking for help. Um, but yes, 100% men have eating disorders too. Uh, and then to the second question about whether you can fully recover from an eating disorder, there's actually controversy about this. Um, you know, I think in the substance use world, there's not as much controversy. It's like once an alcoholic, always alcoholic, you'll always be in recovery. And people say, I'm in recovery, even if they haven't had a drink in 30 years, you know. Eating disorder, uh, the eating disorder field is, is a bit conflicted about this. And I guess I, all I can really give you is my philosophy. And it is, yes, that 100% you can recover from an eating disorder. You can heal. And, and if you address the underlying mechanisms that contributed to your illness, then, um, you know, then, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You can recover and you can recover from the body image piece, too. I think we live, again, in a culture, and really maybe this has been the case since humans became humans, um, that there's always going to be something we're dissatisfied with. So, you know, you may not fully cure dissatisfaction with certain aspects of the way you look, or you may not look in the mirror every single day and say, I look great. I totally accept my body, right? But but um, recovery from negative body image in a normative way is, is 100% possible. And I guess I can say that because I've seen it. You know, and many, many people. Um, so there's hope. <laughs> there's hope, John. But I really appreciate your questions. Thank you for your okay, call, John. You. Yeah, mm-hmm. you bet. So um, there was one other thing that I, I wanted to do. I think we kind of we've jumped in and we've been talking about eating disorders, but there may be some confusion, mm-hmm. um, Liz, about um, what exactly like what are we talking about? Yeah. So when we talk about like so we've mentioned anorexia, right. but what are the main yeah. types of eating disorders? Can you just kind of run that Absolutely. down real quickly? Because I think sometimes when we say eating disorders, maybe people may be familiar with one specific right. kind mm-hmm. and think that mm-hmm. that's all there is as opposed to the different types. That's right. Yeah. Um, Thanks for asking that because I was actually thinking about that earlier. 
um, there, there's so much variation. So you've got your restrictive eating disorders. There are two. Uh, there's anorexia, which is, you know, most people have a sense of what that is. Um, but it's having a dangerously low body weight relative to your expected or ideal body weight, you know, medically speaking. Um, severe restriction of food intake. You know, and again, that preoccupation, obsession with food, often you'll see over-exercise in there. Um, and sometimes, well, I'm not going to get into that. It would take too long. But um, And a, a real fear of, of fatness is, is what it's called in the diagnostic manual. And a, an extreme di- drive for thinness. Yes. All right, and the uh, next oh, one would I be... you were asking a question. No. Uh, and then uh, bulimia, which is binge eating. Binge eating is uh, consuming a, sort of an inordinate or disproportionate amount of food in a short period of time. Often people will say that they're checked out in a binge, that, or, or, or like they'll finish a binge and then they won't even remember what they just did. There's what, That's what's called dissociation. Um, and an extreme amount of guilt after the binge and then using some kind of behavior to compensate or, you know, try to get rid of the food that was consumed. So most typically it's vomiting right after eating, but you can also see laxative use, ex, uh, excessive exercise or fasting actually can mm-hmm. be another way of, of purging, but it's, you know, that's separate from anorexia. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then a new addition to the, the diagnostic manual for mental illnesses is binge eating disorder. And I'm so glad it's in the DSM now because historically folks who have binge eating disorder have just been, you know, shamed and admonished for not having willpower and not having any control. And, you know, they've been, they've been berated for this, both culturally, but also in the medical community and binge eating is a serious, you know, mental illness. It is a diagnosis. And, so it is the, the consumption, again, of just a really large quantity of food in a short period of time. Um, and often there is guilt associated with that. There's just not the use of the compensatory mechanisms like the purging after the, the binge. And usually un- underlying each of these is a real deficit in, in coping, managing, processing emotions. There's often a lot of relationship struggles as well. Um, among many other things that that contribute. And there's a couple of other, there's um, avoidant restrictive food intake disorder or ARFID. That's more, it, it's similar to anorexia in that it's a restrictive illness and it can lead to, you know, medical concerns, but there's not the body image piece. So you'll see that more often. Often folks who are on the autism spectrum have that um, or uh, someone who's had, you know, who has a fear of, of vomiting or a fear of choking or something after eating. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, that was going to be my question. Is this always tied to body image mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. is this sometimes right. um, a manifestation of control or something yeah. like that? I mean, I would say yes and no. I, I think more often than not, it is tied to body image. But even when it's tied to body image, there's so much else that's going mm-hmm. on. You know, it. It's almost like the body body becomes an expression for mental health, for emotion, for needs, for relationship issues. People, again, people who have pro, uh, deficits in managing their emotions tend to use food to express it. So it kind of gets translated through body image for folks, but it's not really at the core of it. And then um, there are times, though, I've seen people with eating disorders who don't 
really it's not as rooted in body image as um you know control or it's soothing to restrict or it's soothing to vomit after eating certainly binge eating you know has i mean there's a giant burst of dopamine that we get when we eat right and uh, chocolate cake i was just gonna say especially when it's birthday cake man (laughs) birthday cake makes everything Uh, right with the world and we all use food at some time to cope in one most of us do right but this is when it becomes really problematic when you're out of control and you can't stop so Liz, how would you what would be your advice because um we're getting close to the end of to the end of our hour i know um but how what would be your advice on how to support so say for example it's not we're not talking about ourselves but how can we best support yeah a person um who is struggling with disordered eating what's the best way Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. well i mean I'm going to give a little bit of a formulaic suggestion because often, well, let me start by saying what not to do. Um, often we can be invalidating without meaning to, you know, we see somebody that we love or care about suffering. If they come to you and say, I'm so fat, our tendency is what? No, no you're not. No, you're not. <laughs> you know, or, or problem solved. Go on a diet. <laughs> you know? right. um, well, you have picked up a few pounds. Right, right. Like, Don't wrong. say that. Don't say that. Um, but yeah, so so to to kind of try and validate, so to recognize like, oh man, I, I can see that you're struggling with the way that you look. I hear you say that you think you're fat and that must be pretty stressful to you. And And maybe ask a little bit about what that's like for them and how is that affecting them? Um, and if you if you see somebody you know who you, you're, you're pretty sure they're struggling and they're having issues, it is really important to offer support, um, kind of from a non-judgmental stance, you know. But but also being firm, like I I love you and I see you're struggling and I'm really worried. Um, and you and know, not to say. I mean, why are you doing that? Why would you do exactly. that? Exactly. Hey, come to the gym with me. Exactly. Right? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Exactly. Because, you know, I hear people with substance use problems say this a lot, that people say, people tell me to just quit drinking. Like, why can't you just stop? You yeah. know, and it's just absolutely doesn't work that way. And if you've never had an eating disorder, of course, you don't understand that. It's so counterintuitive. Like, just stop binging or just eat the damn sandwich. Can I say that? on? Um, I, I think yeah. we might, you might be. The, the, the FCC is going to call us after the show, but you're good. You're good. Just we eat only got that a sandwich. Yeah. Um, oops. Uh, but those types of those types of comments are uh, pretty invalidating, you know, and and um, so being nonjudgmental and supportive, but calling attention. I'm concerned. I want to help you. What can I do for parents? It looks a little bit different. You got to be more direct and and really getting your kid treatment. If they have a full-blown eating disorder, absolutely get them in immediately. It's dangerous. It's so yeah. dangerous. It can cause death at, at worst. Yeah. So, um, But if you're even concerned and you've noticed some strange things or some concerning things, you, it's really important to do some research and reach out for some help. And a couple of quick website plugs. There's a website called Modsley Parents. Um, that's really useful in under, for, for caregivers and understanding how to treat eating disorders. And there's a great book uh, for anybody who's got an eating disorder or has a loved one called Eight Keys to Recovery. So I would I would recommend that one, too. Well, thank you for those suggestions. And Can I make one more plug? Oh, yes, go for it, girl. I forgot when I was introducing myself to mention, I have co-founded an organization called the Mississippi Coalition 
of eating disorder professionals were very grassroots. Uh, I've started along with Jessica Fonz, who's a dietitian, and Susan Landry, who's a local therapist. Shout out. And we are working on assessing the needs of the community where, when it comes to eating disorders and figuring all that stuff out. Thanks for joining us. NPR's Here Now is next on MPB Think Radio. Y'all be safe. Be kind. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. 